If you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We are in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. We're using the Pew Bible that's found on page 599, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. And this morning, we are jumping ahead in our study of, of Isaiah, but, but don't worry, we will go back after Christmas, we will return to where we left off. As I mentioned earlier, during Advent, this series that I'm doing on the, on the book of Isaiah, the study, has morphed into an Advent series, and where we're focusing on the specific prophecies that have been fulfilled by Christ in his first coming. And by God's providence, we just happened, when Advent started, we just happened to be at chapter 7. And chapters 7 through 11 are just chock full of messianic uh, quotations from the New Testament and messianic prophecies. So I just kept going along. But now this next section that we're going to come in is really a series of judgments against the the various nations, uh, against the enemies of God's people during Isaiah's time. And although all scripture, like this, like all scripture, points to Christ, these chapters are not quite... As direct, they're not directly quoted in the New Testament, not quite as relevant for Advent. Therefore, I desi- decided to skip forward to uh, chapter 40. Well, let me give you a little background about chapter 40. The, the background of this section is a little different than what we've been looking at so far. In the first 39 chapters, they deal with Isaiah's contemporary situation. This is where the southern kingdom of Judah is during the reigns of, of the kings Josiah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. As we've seen from earlier studies, the primary crisis that was facing Judah, that's the southern kingdom, was this coalition of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria against Judah. This was the the primary concern. This was the initial concern uh, that they had. And then after that, there was a later threat of the Assyrian Empire. And we saw, from again, from earlier studies, right from the beginning, that this threat from Israel and Syria, the Lord had promised to Ahaz, that they would not be successful. The attack would not succeed. The Lord would protect his people. He would protect Jerusalem. But remember, Ahaz refused to trust the Lord. He refused to, to, to trust the Lord would protect him, and he went to the Assyrians. He basically went and paid the Assyrians to protect them. And this has set them up for future trouble. And as Isaiah prophesied to Ahaz, and later came to true under King Hezekiah, the Assyrian Empire was attacked, or attacked Judah. But again, they were still not able to capture Jerusalem. The Lord, true to his promise, protected his city. Well, chapters 40 through 66, 40 through the end of the book, this fast forwards 150 years. Isaiah is prophesying about a time long after he is dead. Jerusalem has fallen, not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians. And the prophecy that Isaiah gives is meant to provide comfort for his people while they are in exile. And Isaiah even gives the name of the Persian leader who is, going to, who is going to issue the decree, Cyrus, who is going to issue this decree for them to return to the promised land. And if you remember when we started this series on Isaiah, I said that many biblical scholars believe that this section was not even written by Isaiah. It couldn't have been written by Isaiah. It must have been written by another author, either during the exile or after the exile, because there's no way that they could know all these things that he's, he's uh, prophesying. And this conclusion that they come to is not based on any textual evidence, not based on any historical evidence. It's based solely on the fact that according to the the presuppositions of these scholars, Isaiah could not have so accurately predicted the events that would take place 150 years after his death. But for those of us who understand that Isaiah is a true prophet of God, 
Not simply giving his own opinion, but speaking the very words of God himself given to him. This makes for us perfect sense. And as we've seen over the last weeks, and we'll see again today in our reading, Isaiah not only gives visions of 150 years in the future, he gives prophecies of 700 years in the future to the time of Christ. And not only that, he gives prophecies to 2,700 years in the future relating to us at this day. And even further than that, he gives prophecies of the return of Christ, the messianic kingdom, where he's speaking the very, again, he's a prophet, he's speaking the very words of God. Well, the passage that we're about to read today was addressed to God's people who were exiled in Babylon. And it was for the purpose of comforting them, for the purpose of giving them hope that God had not forgotten them. And it points forward. It points forward towards God's hope for them and God's hope for us. And it's the same. It's our only hope. It points to Christ. So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word, your word stands forever. And that's what we're looking at now. And Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word will speak to us today, just as it spoke to your people hundreds of years ago. And Father, we pray that we will be comforted. We pray that we will be challenged. We pray, most of all, we will see Christ. We will see you. (coughs) Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, that I will proclaim your words truthfully, faithfully, boldly, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But above all, that you will be seen and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems the older I get, the faster time goes. And I'm sure many of you can, can identify. Or here we are, just a week from Christmas. Two weeks before the end of 2022. Where did this year go? And it seems hard to believe that our family's been living here in Albany for almost seven years. It seems like we just arrived. But even more troubling than the speed that time seems to be go is as time progresses, we see so much change. We think about places where we used to work or we used to live or friends we had when we were young, and it's all changed. People have moved on. Things are different. It's not the same place we remember. And the sad truth is we can never go back. The places and times we remember, they are gone. And especially at Christmas time when we're, we're so filled with nostalgia, we listen to the same Christmas music. We follow the same family traditions. And they fill us with these memories, memories of our, our childhood Christmases 
But those places and those people and that nostalgic feeling, it only exists in our minds. And this is really quite disconcerting for us. These memories and, and these traditions, what they do is they, they ground us. They, they give us a feeling of security, a feeling of stability in this rapidly changing, often hostile world. And we see this, especially when we hear of a death of a loved one, whether it's a grandparent or a parent or a spouse or a close friend. We know that from this point forward, our future will be vastly different because this person, who is such a big part of our lives, is no longer here with us on this earth. And we feel the same sense of loss, not just the death of a loved one, but also with a physical loss. I mean, think about the, the loss of a childhood home, a home filled with many happy memories that, that may have been destroyed, made by a fire or, or knocked down to make room for some other construction. There's a, a real sense of loss, a, a real mourning. Even if, even if you've moved away, even if you don't regularly see the place, there's just a comfort of, of knowing that it, it simply exists. And when it's gone, it causes us to, to, to lose a little piece of ourselves. Well, the original audience to this prophecy, the audience that was in Babylon, who were, they were suffering a great loss. They had lost their homeland. When they were conquered by Babylon, the, the people were, were forcefully removed. They were forcefully removed from their homes, and they were taken from the promised land, and they were taken to live in Babylon. And the vast majority of those people who were taken would never again step foot and the promised land. And this is the land that was given to them by God. A land for which they were the people of God. This was, this was a major part of their identity as a culture. And it was gone. This was a land that their family had lived in, had worshipped in, had worked in, had, had, had loved for nearly a thousand years. This is where the temple, where God met with his people. It was destroyed. The temple that was standing since King Solomon was destroyed. Just to put it in perspective for us, imagine there was a war and the United States was conquered, say, by, by Russia. And each of us, we were taken from, from the sunny south where we are, and we were all forcefully removed to go live in, in Siberia. And we, and we were living there. And all the things that we love so much, things that give us our identity as Americans, all of these things were destroyed. I mean, think about the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument. All of these things are destroyed. This would mess us up big time. Our world would be rocked. We would lose our, our sense of stability, our sense of security, our sense of identity. Well, this is what the original audience was going through. This is what they were facing. The original audience, who this prophecy was written, this is how they would have felt. And I want us to take a look at verses 6 and 7 in, the, in this passage. Because this gives us a very hard reality. One that we don't really grasp when we're young. It's not until we're a little older, until we've suffered some loss, loss of a loved one, the loss of a home, the loss of an identity. It's not until then that this hard reality becomes self-evident. And it's frightening. It's discouraging. It says, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. And what these verses do is they highlight both the, the brevity and the fleeting nature of our lives in this fallen world. All flesh, all people are like a flower. Our lives are brief. Our lives are fragile. And like a flower, for, for a few moments we blossom and, and we bring bright beauty and sweet fragrance to the world. But then we fade, then we fall, then we die, then we're forgotten. 
And this is not just true of people. It's true of civilizations. It's true of cultures. It's true of empires. Right? Where are the Assyrians? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Medes and the Persians and the Romans? These empires are all gone. And as human beings, made in the image of God, made for eternity, this just seems so wrong. See, we long for, for permanence. We long for significance. We need something that is permanent to stabilize us. We need security. We need grounding. And the futility of life, when seen, when recognized, it, it could literally drive us mad. But thankfully, Isaiah doesn't leave us here. He shows us where we can find this permanence that we so desperately desire. And he takes our eyes off ourselves, and he shows us where we can find it. And that reality is that all, gra- all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. But then verse 8 provides the answer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And here's where we find the permanence. Here is our security. Here is our stability. It's found in the unchanging, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. We have it right here. We all are holding it here in our hands. And this word points to our Savior. My friends, there is no security in this world. There's no security in our things, in in our homes, in our possessions, in our relationships. Our security is only found in Christ. It is only found in being united to Christ, being united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we know him. We have access to him. We understand him only through his word, in his word alone. So let's now turn our attention to what this word is telling us. The specific word of God that is giving to these people. What is the Lord through his prophet Isaiah telling his people? Well, let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And this verse is meant to comfort those who are in exile in Babylon. The Lord is speaking tenderly to them. He knows that they're suffering. And this message is intended to help that suffering, to relieve that suffering. Notice he refers to them as Jerusalem, reminding them that although they may not, not be in Jerusalem, Jerusalem may be a very different city, occupied by those who do not know God. The temple may be destroyed. The, the sacrifices may have ceased. But he's reminding them that his covenant with them still stands. He's reminding them that they are still his people and he is still their God. And the message here is that their warfare has ended, or their struggle has ended. See, the Lord's chastisement of them, his discipline of them, his just discipline due to their rebellion against him, this time has now ended. Isaiah tells them that their iniquity is pardoned. I mean, think about a person convicted of crime, sentenced to life in prison, and then gets word that the president or the governor pardons him, and he is now set free. That's what, they, that's what they're experiencing. But it's even better than this. The Lord's not only going to pardon them of their sins, he says he's going to bless them. He's going to bless them double for their sins. And this is all of grace. So how is he going to do this? How is this going to happen? Well, as with much biblical prophecy, there's multiple levels of fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment is this decree that Cyrus puts out, and it's predicted in chapter 45. And it's the return of the exiles as described in in the biblical books of Ezra or Nehemiah. But this is not the ultimate fulfillment. 
See, God's people, although they were allowed back to Jerusalem, they still faced great struggles, and they never really received this double blessing that they were promised. And from a worldly perspective, they never returned to the glory, their former glory, to the glory of the days of King David or the days of King Solomon when Israel was a superpower, a force to be reckoned with. They never returned to that glory. But that's the reason is because the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment is not found in Cyrus, not found in the returning to the land. The ultimate fulfillment comes in Christ. And we see, an in, we see a direct reference to Christ's coming and his ministry in verses 3 to 5. Look at these verses. As a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we know what this is about. We heard what this is about. The New Testament gives us the answer to what this prophecy is pointing to. And it's pointing to John the Baptist. And all four Gospels attribute this prophecy specifically to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist and his ministry, they are something of an enigma to us. We know that they're obviously important because he's mentioned in all four Gospels. He's mentioned here in this prophecy from Isaiah. So we know that John is important. But the question is why? Why is he important? What is so important about John the Baptist? What is so important about this prophecy? Well, the answer here is that John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord. He prepares the way for the Lord. So so what does this mean? John removes the barriers, barriers to coming to faith, barriers to coming to Christ, barriers to seeing Christ, barriers to believing in Christ. And look at the words that are used. It starts off within the wilderness. Well, in Scripture, the wilderness always refers to a place that is harsh. It is hostile. It is a place of trial and testing. And the Israelites, remember, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, And even Jesus, after his baptism, Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the wilderness is a place where basically it takes everything you've got simply to survive. It's not a place of prosperity. It's not a place of flourishing. It's not a place of blessing. It also represents a place of spiritual darkness. So the Israelites in Babylon, they were not in a literal desert, a literal wilderness, but they were in a spiritual wilderness. They were living among pagans. They were away from the temple. They were away from the daily spiritual practices that reminded them of who they were, of whose they were, reminds them of the living God. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult for us to remain faithful to the Lord in an environment that is opposed to the Lord. And I'm sure many of you can identify this. If you've been in a secular environment or a worldly environment where you're not surrounded by many believers, it affects you. It wears you down. It affects your thinking and it pulls you away from the Lord. And you start thinking like everyone else. I remember years ago when I was working for Virginia Tech, I had a week-long training conference in in Asheville. And the, the, the classes started on Sunday, so I had to leave early Sunday morning, so I missed worship. And as we were there, it was a very secular, very worldly environment that I was there. And even just for a short time, I was feeling so spiritually dry. And there happened to be a PCA church just within walking distance of of the campus. It was um, University of North Carolina campus in Asheville. And I was able to walk to a PCA church, and they had a Wednesday night Bible study. And I went there, and, and, and it was like sobs. This is coming in, and I was getting refreshed 
by this, hearing the word, uh, studying the word, singing psalms, others praying with the other believers there. And this provided the, the much-needed refreshment that I had craved. It, it charged my batteries for the rest of the week. Well, this prophecy in, in John's ministry are preparing the way for the Lord in the wilderness. God's people were in the wilderness, and John is meeting them in the wilderness, in the spiritual wilderness that they are, to provide that way, to, to make way, that way easy for them. <clears throat> so John made straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. See, a desert here is just simply synonymous with the wilderness. And I remember when I was a kid, um, driving through the badlands of Utah, which were, which were, were, which were desert. And it was a hostile environment. You're driving through there, and um, you know it, it, there's hills, there's 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 sand. And I remember that they told us before we went in there. They warned you, make sure you take water. Don't ever leave the road if your car breaks down. Just stay on the road. Highway patrols come through every couple hours because if you go off into the desert, you will die. You will die in the desert. And I remember driving through there. You drive through a little town, and basically all it was was a gas station, maybe a place to eat. And a hotel. And then there was a sign that says, last gas for 200 miles. And then you went 200 miles, and you came to another little town like that, so you can fill up your gas. And I remember this road that we were on. It was, it was a straight road. It was a flat road, driving through the badlands of Utah. And you could drive on it very fast. I remember I was really excited. My dad was driving a little rental car at 100 miles an hour. And even at 100 miles an hour, it's two hours till we get to the next town. And we're driving through that way. But that's on the highway. Not so far, not so in the desert. I mean, if a car went into the desert, it would just get stuck. Maybe if you had an off-road vehicle, you can go maybe 20 miles an hour because of all the hills and all the bumps and all the sands and all the valleys. And the engineers when they, when they, and the construction workers, when they made that road in the desert, they had to, to lift up these valleys. They had to knock down these hills so that the road could be straight and flat. The uneven ground needed to be made level. The rough places made to be made, to be made plain. And just as this is needed to build a physical road in a physical desert, in a physical wilderness, John the Baptist does the same thing in the spiritual realm. See, John needed to remove the spiritual barriers that prevented people from, from even recognizing who he was, even recognizing their need for the Lord, being able to even see him, being able, able, even able to come to him. So how did John do this? How did he prepare the way of the Lord? How did he remove the obstacles? Well, if you remember, John came by preaching. Preaching a message of repentance. And he gave them the baptism of repentance. And this prepared the people. It prepared them to receive Jesus, to, to hear the gospel, to receive the Messiah. And these barriers, these barriers had to be removed not only for John's audience, but also had to be removed for Isaiah's original audience. See, it was a time, in, in the time in Isaiah, they were in exile. And remember when we looked at, at chapter 6, when we saw uh, Isaiah's call? Do you remember what the Lord said to Isaiah would be the outcome of his ministry? What would be the result of the prophecy that Isaiah would give in Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6, verse 9 and follow. Hear these words. It says, The Lord said, Go and say to this people, so he's talking to Isaiah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I, Isaiah, said, How long, O Lord? 
And the Lord said, Until cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. See, Isaiah is told here to preach to the people, but the people won't hear him. He'll preach true words. And if they, if they hear him and they repent, they will be healed. But they won't. They're not able to understand his message. Their mind has become dull. Their hearts have become hard. And these barriers, there are barriers here that keep them from, from hearing the warning and keep them from repenting and keep them from turning from the Lord and thus being saved. And Isaiah says, he says, Lord, how long? How long will the people continue to be hardened to these pleas? How long will, will they not be able to repent and return to the Lord? And the answer is given, until the cities lie in waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And where we are now in Isaiah, in chapter 40, this time has come. The cities of Judah now lie in waste. The houses are now without people. The land is now a desolate waste. Because the people have been removed. They have been taken to exile. Is there a problem back there? Are we okay? Okay. Thank you. So the people are now in the wilderness. And now this is where this is where they have been hardened. The judgment has ended. The hardening has stopped. And the people are now in the wilderness, and now the way of the Lord is being prepared. Now a straight highway is made in the desert by the Lord for the people to return to him. And notice that it's the Lord who has to take the initiative. The people are unable. We are unable to return to the Lord on our own. And this is all of grace. This is the Lord giving them double for all their sins. And not only is the way prepared, that is, their hearts are softened. But once their hearts are softened, then the people will repent and return to the Lord and will receive his forgiveness. And it's vitally important for us to realize the horrible nature of our sin and the horrible nature of the judgment that it brings upon us. See, the judgment brings hardening. And this, har- and this hardening incurs further sin and further judgment. So you see, it's, it's, it's a vicious circle. We sin, and the result of the sin is hardening. And the result of that hardening is we sin more. So we get further hardening. And it causes this vicious circle, which will continue unless the Lord takes the initiative. Unless the Lord takes the initiative to break this vicious cycle, it will continue, we will continue, to spiral downward and downward for all eternity. My friends, this is what hell is. Hell is this continual downward spiral of sin and misery. Remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at Christ's return and I mentioned in the new heavens and the new earth, even though we will be perfect and sinless from, from the day one, from the first time we get, we get there, we will be perfect. But each day, as we're in the new heavens and the new earth, as we are in the Lord's presence, our capacity will continue to increase. So it's kind of like we'll, we'll arrive with a cup that's full, but as we spend more time, our cup will continue to get bigger and bigger, and that cup will be filled too. This is the amazing thing about this continual progression that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. My friends, hell is the exact opposite. The souls in hell will be utterly miserable. They will be in torment from day one. 
In fact, those who rebel against God and, and reject his mercy and grace, this process starts long before their death. But for the souls in hell, their first day in hell will be their best day. And every day will be worse for all eternity. And even though that first day will be unspeakably horrible, but even more horrible, as if we can even imagine this, will be the fact that for those souls in hell, they will continue this downward spiral of sin and rebellion for all eternity. And the really scary thing is that I think disheartening in judgments is exactly what we as a culture, we as a church, are experiencing at this very moment. Is this not what we read in Romans chapter 11? I mean, hear these words to, to, that Paul wrote to the Romans. It feels like they could be written to the 21st century American church. I know there's, there's a meme going around on, on Facebook that says that if Paul could see the, the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. Well, I think this is the letter we would be getting. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Doesn't this sound familiar? This, my friends, is the judgment on our generation, the judgment on our culture. And this is, frankly, this is terrifying. And the question is, is there an answer? Is there any hope? Well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. My friends, we need a John the Baptist. We need a John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway, to lift up every valley, and to make low every hill. And where do we find this today? Well, the grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. And what we do is we look to the word. We look to God's eternal, infallible, holy word. God speaking through his word. God speaking through the word preached. The word displayed in the sacraments. My friends, this is our only hope. 
And just like with John the Baptist, it comes through preaching. It comes through the sacraments. But unlike John, who only had a a partial message, a message of repentance, we have the whole message. Repentance and we have the gospel of grace. And God, through his word, he convicts us of our sin. When we look at his law, we see that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of keeping this law. And God's word tells us that the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Eternal death in that downward spiral of sin and misery in hell. The wages of sin is death, but, I love that word, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. My friends, this is our gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And how does God do this? By making him, by making Jesus Christ who knew no sin. That is that he was perfectly righteousness to become sin for us so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. And then God makes this great exchange. He takes our sin. He takes our sins and places them on Christ and punishes them in Christ on the cross. And then he takes Christ's perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, and he rewards that obedience in us by giving us eternal life. And scripture tells us if we confess with our mouths and if we believe in our hearts this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is found in the Holy Scriptures alone, then we will be justified. Then we will become a new creation in Christ. And the Holy Spirit takes this word, this word preached, and he uses it. He uses it to change us. And he gives us new life. We become born again. And in response to the the working of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the supernatural faith that we are able to believe the gospel. We are able to repent of our sins. We are able to live for him. We are able to serve him. My friends, each one of us, we must prepare the way of the Lord through prayerful reading, through prayerful learning and studying of God's word. And the end product is to lead us to Christ, to let us see Christ, to know Christ, because it's only in Christ. It's only in Christ that we find this security. It's only in Christ that we find this permanence. It's only in Christ that we find this joy that we all seek. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the prophecy. We are amazed at these prophecies written 700 years before Christ, how they are perfectly fulfilled, and how they speak to us today, 2,700 years later. That is because it's your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is at work. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will go out. Your Holy Spirit will accomplish the purpose of your word as it is proclaimed. And Father, I pray that it will change lives, it will change hearts, and that we will live for you and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If we please stand, our closing hymn is Go Tell It on the Mountain. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go on up to a high